Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you, gents. Good to see you, Chris. We will break down the latest news from the telecom industry, the energy industry, and the donut industry. With the World Cup just days away, we will analyze the business of soccer. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. We are taping a little early this week before the monthly jobs report is out, so we will not be starting with the big macro. Instead, let's start with General Motors. On Thursday, CEO Mary Barra announced the firing of 15 employees who GM determined to have acted inappropriately in connection to the ignition switch defect that's linked to nearly 50 vehicle crashes and at least 13 deaths. And, Ron, the investigation concluded there was no deliberate cover-up. So my first question is, is this behind GM now? Interesting. Um, I like the way Mary Barr has uh, handled it. I know we spoke before the show. You think she could have even gone a little bit um, further. Um, but I like the way she's handled it. It's over in the sense that they're going to come up with a program to compensate these individuals. It's hard to say if it's only the 13 people that unfortunately lost their lives. Is this going to go bigger than that? Um, What I find really interesting is that the new GM is not the same as the old GM. It's actually a different entity. When they went bankrupt in 2009, a new entity was created, and the new one is not actually liable for things that happened to the old GM. And so lawsuits would probably not um, be successful here, although people can certainly try. Um, So if they put together this fund, they compensate people accordingly, they apologize, they say, we really screwed up, which I think they've done – I guess they move forward. I think I was just looking for a little bit more of a the buck stops here from Mary Barra because there was so much excitement around her being the first female CEO of a major automotive company. Um, and, and James, if you think back to that time earlier this year, you look at her resume, she's immensely qualified. To the extent that there was any inkling of, well, maybe they need someone from the outside to change the culture. It was just that. It was, well, she's she's great, and on paper she looks great, but she's not going to be uh, injecting any fresh outside perspective in the way that, for example, Alan Mulally did when he went to Ford yeah, Motor. Yeah, she, she had an opportunity to be proactive, and that's what they needed, and she fell flat. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, Jason, do you think that uh, that they need that? I mean, obviously, I'm not saying they need a new CEO, but that they need to go one step further because I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying, yes, GM handled this the right way. This was an outside investigation led by a former U.S. attorney. They did everything by the book. And yet the culture at GM still maybe needs to be improved. No, I, I think I'm willing to give her a little bit of a passer. I mean, I think she's done a great job of taking over what's really been just a crappy situation. I mean, we hear this word culture brought in the, into play here a lot with GM recently. And I think that the issues that have been going on here are indicative of just a really poor culture that has been uh, within this company for a long time. You don't change that overnight. Um, and so, you know, what we saw Alan Mulally do with Ford, I mean, he, he you know got there around 2006 or something. He really sort of – he changed – the the direction of the conversation there got everybody focused on on sort of uh, you know this they got he got everybody on the same page really uh, he encouraged people to to you know point out the problems with the business things they needed to correct and I think that over time uh, you know Barr is going to be able to do that as well 
you see how uh, Ford has done a great job of, of promoting from within, and now you have uh, Mark Fields who will be taking over that CEO position. And I think that shows that culture will continue. And I think that really that's the biggest challenge for Mary Barra today is is to really you know get that culture uh, you know going there at, at uh, GM. And it's just it, it's too early for us to really criticize her too much for that. When you look at the stock. Ron, does it uh, strike you as attractive? You know, I haven't done my own independent work on it, but our friends over at Inside Value, Motley Fool Inside Value, um, Joe Mager has a buy on it, thinks it's worth about $44, stocks around 36 so we maybe have 20% plus uh, upside. Shares of music streaming service Pandora dipped earlier this week when the antitrust division of the U.S. Department of Justice announced it will be reviewing songwriter rate agreements. Uh, the current ones were put in place decades ago, and Jason... People are saying one potential outcome, potential outcome, is Pandora ends up paying more to songwriters. Uh, this is already a company that's not profitable, and this <laughs> potential outcome puts well them put. e- even further away from that. No, I think that's a very good observation there. I mean, that's the you know going through this company's income statement. That's the thing that really stands out is for all of the money they're bringing in, you know, on the revenue side, they still are not profitable. And I think the question investors have to ask themselves today. Regardless of the fact that Pandora, I think, puts out a great product, I mean, most people use it for free. They're not paying for it. Is this a company, is this an investment from today that that can stand to do well over the course of time? I don't necessarily believe that it is because of you know the royalty issue there. I think that artists are the ones really getting screwed here, and I think they're starting to really make a bunch of noise about it. But also, I mean, from the pricing power perspective, you know, if Pandora shut its doors tomorrow or if they jacked up prices tomorrow, there'd be all sorts of options out there. And there are already all sorts of options out there for us to go try. They're essentially the same thing. I mean, yeah, their music genome product, uh, project, I think, is certainly a, a good sort of a recommendation tool. But this is this is not the same kind of a Netflix model that you might see where you know they're bringing in subscriber fees all the time. Pandora is based on advertising, and I think they're going to continue to be based on advertising because there's just nothing really compelling there to pay for a subscription to Pandora. So they've definitely got their work cut out for them. Apple held its annual Worldwide Developers Conference this week. They unveiled software updates, uh, a new programming language called Swift. Uh, James, CEO Tim Cook has got six months to make good on his promise of a new device by the end of 2014. Did we get any clues this week as to what that direction may be in terms uh, of the device you, itself? We don't, but we got this programming language, which I think is is noteworthy in and of itself. I mean, Apple has decided it's sort of big enough to be the successful Betamax. In other words, try to monopolize <laughs> this market. Um, they're going to supercharge app development by, uh, you know, one one source uh, explained it like by appealing to these 13, 14, and 15-year-old developers you know, who are the future. I mean, they're basically taking a page out of Altria's playbook in, in that respect and marketing to these guys. But the, you know, the, the, the screen is called a playground. It's, it's very user-friendly. So if the more apps they get, uh, the more this ecosystem grows. So it's a smart move for them. Another big deal is brewing in the telecom industry. Sprint and T-Mobile are reportedly looking to merge in a deal worth $32 billion. And, Ron, some consumers are excited at the prospect of a stronger sort of third alternative to AT&T and Verizon. But investors, at least in the short term, (laughs) are not. Uh, When this uh, story broke, shares of both Sprint and T-Mobile were dropping. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if this gets through the DOJ and the FCC. And you know, on on the one hand, you need a stronger third player to be able to compete with Verizon at AT and T, and Sprint and T Mobile are much smaller than those two players. Uh, on the other hand, reducing the the industry to three players instead of four does reduce 
somewhat the choices that people have, and it could reduce the competition on price. Um, I've read uh, that the DOJ has already said they're somewhat skeptical um, about a deal going through. I kind of have a feeling that in the end it does go through, although three years ago we know that the AT&T deal and the T-Mobile deal got killed. Um, if I was going to bet, which I won't, but if I was going to, I think it goes through. As a T-Mobile customer, when I moved back from Asia, I had to get a new phone. So I got T-Mobile. as unlimited you know, uh, uh, data or whatever. It sounds great, right? Unless you try to actually move around you know, <laughs> farther than the mile square radius from, from D.C. center. Uh, this would maybe give me a two-mile radius, so that's appealing to me. It does seem on the face of it, though, Ron, that this this almost seems like a no-brainer, particularly when – Yes, the FCC has, you know, regulators have other bigger deals that they are looking at, Comcast, Time Warner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those appear to be more marriage of monopolies than this. This is, you know, when we talk about telecoms, these aren't just the third and fourth uh, players in the space. They are the distant third and fourth players. Right, and and I I question whether they'll actually survive unless unless this happens. So I think there is a good argument for it to go through. SoftBank owns 80% of Sprint. They're pushing hard. Um, for it to go through, and I think it gets done. Coming up, one of our favorite business leaders is back in the news. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, it has been a great environment for raising money. We've seen that with all the IPOs, and we're seeing it with executives raising money for their own ventures. And that's where our old friend Aubrey McClendon comes in. (laughs) Yes, the former CEO of Chesapeake Energy has raised close to $9 billion to drill into the Utica shale. He is heading up a new company called American Energy Utica. Uh, James, first and foremost, uh, this has to be yet another very bullish sign for the natural gas industry, don't you think? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> Aubrey has had good luck, yeah. But I mean, there, I would not say it's a bullish shine for his investors. Uh, you know, first of all, this guy's first priority is, is, is needs to be staying out of jail. I mean, this guy is <laughs> the Marion Barry of the business world. If you guys know, you know, Marion Barry, former uh, Washington, D.C. mayor, I mean, he, he grossly overpaid his board at Chesapeake so that they would, in turn, grossly overpay him. He has an SEC investigation, a DOJ investigation. Um, you know, he got kicked out of Chesapeake, basically, for, for uh, various reasons and paid $35 million to leave. But I was looking, I think there's a, a few articles uh, describing his company. There is this American Energy Capital Partners, 11.65% front end load. Whoa, I mean, that wow. is obscene. 2% fee every time there's a lease that he acquires, 1% disposition fee for a lease that presumably a bad deal that he wants to get out of. He charges his investors also. I mean, they're paying for his mistake. So I would run far, far away from this guy. And yet, if only for my own <laughs> entertainment purposes, I'm just hoping that this company goes public later this year. Don't you, on some level, want Aubrey McClendon to once again be the CEO of a public company? <laughs> Ain't going to happen. No. <laughs> For entertainment value, yeah. Uh, shares of Krispy Kreme Donuts down 15% on Wednesday after disappointing first quarter sales. They also lowered guidance for the full fiscal quarter. Jason, they blamed the weather, and i, I got to give them a little bit of sympathy on that, because uh, unlike auto sales where if you don't go car shopping because the weather was bad, you're probably going to go back maybe the next weekend. Uh, 
Miss Donuts Hill is lost forever. Yep, you're right. I mean, it is lost forever. You're not going back there and doubling up on donuts so the, the next day. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, we, we've, you know, the, the weather, I think we've probably given everyone a pass on this past uh, quarter. It was just something that really had a profound effect, it seemed, across the country. But I think that Krispy Kreme's problems uh, certainly transcend the weather. I mean, this is really, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, Krispy Kreme was the donut place to go to. Uh, it, just, it just seemed like it was such a, a popular concept that had such a great future ahead. And really, you look at it today, I mean, it's just a small fish in a really big pond that just doesn't really want their donuts, apparently. I mean, they, they sell, you know, a few of them, but they don't really have any kind of a brand that, that reaches, you know, from, from coast to coast. And you look at something like Dunkin' Donuts that does. Uh, you look at Starbucks that does, and it, and it really obviously is very global. Uh, you look at Panera, and they continue to grow their footprint there. And, and, and Krispy Kreme, uh, their store presence, it's 850 or so stores. Uh, it's, just a, it's just small in comparison. I don't see any reason why they should uh, be able to really, uh, you know, gain any share on the on those aforementioned. Ron, uh, do you eat Krispy Kreme, or are you not a fan? I haven't had one in years and years yeah. and years. Well, I think the key is here. The well, Krispy, it's more of a southern the, franchise too. You get like the Krispy Kremes. Yeah. You get yeah. the Krispy Kremes when the students come by and they're selling them for a, a, a school sale, or or you you find them in a gas station that just happens to carry Krispy Kreme donuts. You, you don't really go to a Krispy Kreme store to buy Krispy Kreme donuts at this point because there just aren't that many around. Uh, whereas you you seem to see a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner at this point. Uh, I'd be interested just to see the statistics of National Donut Day, how many donuts actually come from Dunkin' Donuts versus Krispy Kreme. I, I think that pretty much seals the deal right there, wouldn't you? I think it does, yes. Friday, June 6th, National Donut Day, which uh, I was very happy to see was not just this crass commercial endeavor. This was actually started in the 1930s by the Salvation Army to honor men and women who served donuts to soldiers during World War One. Now, you usually bring in donuts for us on Friday. Our listeners probably don't know that. Um, since we're taping early this week, will you still be bringing us donuts? No. Apparently he's not going to. No. That's it? I'm coming to your house. <laughs> I'm on my own? National Donut Day. You, you, I think a lot of places are going to be giving away free donuts. <laughs> All right. L- um, let's bring in our man, Steve Brunner, from the other side of the glass. Do you have a favorite donut, Steve? Chocolate Frosted never does me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what donut has done you wrong, just out of curiosity? I'm not a big fan of anything pink or orange, usually. It's just food color. So you're not a seasonal guy, is what you're saying? Not really, no. Just chocolate frosted, we're done. Boston cream? Not really. (laughs) Jelly? (laughs) Yeah, not a fan. (laughs) Let's not run through every donut in the universe, shall we? Uh, Before we get to the stocks on our radar, I should mention, we are hiring here at The Motley Fool. Uh, You can find all our jobs listed uh, on our culture blog, which is just culture.fool.com. That's culture.fool.com. We're looking to hire writers people in our tech department, marketing, financial planners. We're looking for people in Canada and Australia as well. So check it out at culture.fool.com. All right, Ron Gross, what's the stock on your radar this week? All right, this is just a radar stock, not a recommendation. Are we clear? The Children's Place, PLCE, Children's Specialty Retailer. Uh, It's a potential deep value investment, strong balance sheet, $195 million in cash, no debt, only a billion-dollar company, selling at five-time cash flow, Good international expansion, slowing down U.S. expansion. They've had some trouble, but they look like they're getting it right. Could be interesting. Steve, any questions about the children's place? Where do they acquire their children from? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's that kind of store. (laughs) Wow. James Early, what's on your radar? I'm going back to female health, which is a an income investor recommendation. 
FHCO. If, if you don't want to be shopping at the Children's Place, you might use their product. It's a female <laughs> condom. Uh, it's it's primarily purchased, though, by, by large, like USAID, the United Nations, uh, various uh, humanitarian groups to stop uh, the spread of, of diseases among third world women. Uh, so so those are the, the main purchase. It's not like a, something that, that we would buy in the U.S., but the stock has gotten hammered. It yields about 5% now. It's a tiny company, just a couple hundred million dollar market cap, but they have very cyclical purchasing patterns because they're customers. So I think now might be kind of a trough, a good Didn't time to Didn't you recommend that. that like last week? Or no, the week no, before? at least the week before. No, no, it's been a few weeks before <laughs> that. Okay. If you liked it at the slightly higher price <laughs> yeah, it was at before, you're going to yeah, like it, it even more now. You're going to love it at the lower uh, price now. Uh, Steve, question about female health? So uh, in this space, I'll phrase this gingerly, in this space, are governments dictating the success or failure of a product like this? Uh, this is the only, they, there, there are a few female condom makers, but female health is the only one that has a World Health Organization and an FDA-approved condom. So they basically get all those big purchases. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this I week? Can't, I can't help but sense an underlying theme here. I, I love where Ron was going with the children's play. Steve, my pick, this is right for you, buddy, because I know you got another you got another child here coming soon. Um, I'm going with Carter's, actually. Very similar to the children's place. Uh, Carter's, ticker C-R-I. It is uh, kids' clothes. And, you know, I, I think that... A few reasons why you really got to like these kids' clothing retailers. Number one, they're, they're market-focused on, you know, kids five, six, five, six years old and under. Uh, that means you don't have that same fashion risk that you see in your teen retailers like your Urban Outfitters or your Aeropostales because it's the parents that are calling the shots. Uh, and as we, you know, look out here over the course of the next decade, that population of children will continue to grow. It's about 20 uh, – Population of children five years and younger today, about 24.5 million. It's projected to be about 26.5 to 27 million by 2023. Steve, no doubt you're counted in on that. Uh, but, you know, you not look as at one the, of the distribution. Tri- as one of the contributors, not as one of the, the contributors. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Let me be very clear. But the distribution model I think they have is very interesting because not only do they have 17,000 points of wholesale around the country and target. Uh, J.C. Penney's, for now at least. Uh, they also have their own retail segment, and so they have their own stores, e-commerce, and so for me, you know, I look at uh, Carter's. It's a genuine opportunity there. Steve, question about Carter's? Should I worry that that model seems heavily based on discounting? So it's like, hey, everything at Carter's is on sale, or this is the huge clearance rack. When we buy stuff, it's always on the clearance rack there. No, I don't think so at all. I think that you pretty much you'll see that with most children's clothes, uh, except when you look at something like a Jimboree, where you have a Jimboree and then like a Janie and Jacks, where that's sort of that higher price. Most parents are focused on value, and, and those uh, those retailers do a pretty good a job. They, they do a good job of making you think you got a great deal. You can see their margin lines stay pretty healthy. Steve, Carter's, Female Health, The Children's Place, any of those stocks of interest to you? I do love Carter's. We get a lot of clothes there, so it's it's a joyous day to go into Carter's, and all the fabrics feel great. Kid loves them. Pick <laughs> up a stuffed feel, animal. It's kind, no, of a, it's kind of a sensual comment, I guess. All right, it wasn't ahead. meant to be. It's just a good-natured thing. All right, guys, thanks for being here. Just in time for the World Cup, we will dig into the business of the world's most popular sport. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We are just a few days away from the start of the World Cup. Time to talk about the business of soccer. Stefan Szymanski is a professor of sport management at the University of Michigan. He is also the co-author of the book Soccernomics, Why England Loses, Why Germany and Brazil Win, and Why the U.S., Japan, Australia, Turkey, and even Iraq are destined to become the kings of the world's most popular sport. Stefan, thank you for being here. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Congratulations, first, on just an epic subtitle. That might be the longest <laughs> subtitle of any book uh, of any author I've interviewed. But l- let me just begin my questions taking it right from the subtitle. Um, why do Germ- Germany and Brazil always seem to do so well when it comes to soccer? Well, I, I think um, in the case of Brazil, I think you can put it down to population. I mean, one thing is you need a very large population uh, in order to have a lot of talented players. I mean, if you think that there's a talent distribution out there and you only pick from the very top end of the distribution, then the more the, the larger the total your total size of your population, the more likely it is that you're going to get people at the very top end who are going to be world beaters. Um, and Brazil is a very populous country, more populous than, than most of the other soccer-playing nations in the world, and that, that conveys an advantage. Uh, Germany is also similarly, uh, particularly within Europe, it's, it's the most populous nation, so, so they have that advantage. But of course, the other advantage that the Germans have is enormous wealth. And, I mean, you need money to develop the talent that you have. You need to invest in facilities and so forth and training. And so we argue in the book that, that one, of the, one of the key factors in Germany's success uh, has been has been its enormous wealth. England is not a poor country. Why, why is it that uh, again from your subtitle? Why does England always lose? Uh, well, uh, part of our argument is that actually England don't lose that much more than you would expect, given their population and uh, wealth. So uh, you'd expect England to be one of the top nations, and they are usually one of the top nations. So England regularly appears in the top ten. Uh, in the FIFA rankings, um, they usually get to the finals of most of the competitions. They usually get through the group stage, although they might struggle a little bit this year. Um, and they usually get knocked out in the last 16, the quarterfinal or maybe the semifinal, which is really as far as you'd expect a nation that's ranked in the top 10 to go. And, you know, as one of the top 10 wealthiest, biggest nations, um, that looks just about right. So bringing it closer to home, the United States, more than 300 million people, certainly a wealthy country. Why doesn't the U.S. do better in soccer? Well, obviously, the, the, the big point is that uh, the, the, the cultural factor, which is that soccer's never been the biggest sport in the United States, as it is in almost every other country that plays the game. And again, you need to attract some of the top athletic talent into the game. And I think that's one of the points you make in the book is that soccer has been growing in popularity in the US for, for many years. Um, and it's quite possible that in the future, more young, young kids will get drawn into the game and the United United States uh, performance will improve. I, I think the one interesting question is the the talent development system, which again in American sports is very different because usually players go through uh, the process of going to college and then they graduate from college, they're drafted into the major leagues. Um, that doesn't really work in soccer. It's um, players tend to more to go in at the age of uh, they develop to the age of 16, 17 and start their professional careers then. And and I think one thing, if the United States is to be competitive, it needs to some way mimic that system. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Stefan Szymanski, co-author of the best-selling book, Soccernomics. I want to talk about the World Cup in a little bit, but let's get into the business of soccer. And let me start with something that uh, is certainly playing out in the NFL here in the U.S., and that is the health issue. Uh, particularly concussions 
And you see these stories more and more, Stefan, about not just football and the decline of participation in youth uh, American football, but concussions and head injuries being a threat to soccer as well. And I'm curious if that is being viewed now as a potential business threat, or is that really something that's just at the youth stage and at the professional stage, it is not a concern? Well, I think one thing that's always been problematic in the world of soccer is there's a high level of secrecy and often a lack of um, openness and willingness to address problems. So I I think there's good reason to think that concussions might be an issue when players head the ball um, they that can cause can be very high impact and and we really don't know what the what the implications are for, for this doing this repeatedly over a long period of time um, and so one would like to see the sorts of studies that we're starting to see based around the NFL and um, if it was proven that there was long-term damage then maybe there would have to be changes in the way the game was played but but right now we're not seeing a lot of pressure to do anything about that um, and I think some ways uh, there will have to be some high profile casualties in order for us to really uh, in order for the football authorities to really start to pay attention to this. Former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer just bought the LA Clippers in the NBA for $2 billion, uh, some of the big soccer clubs around the world have big money behind them, billionaire owners. As a general rule of thumb, does money buy success in soccer? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the question of, of uh, the, the spending $2 billion on the LA Clippers is something that has got people's attention uh, going. And uh, a lot of people questioning whether a, fr- a franchise could really be worth that much money. Um, it strikes me, actually, that, that, that it quite possibly could be. Um, uh, Sterling played only $12.5 million for, uh, for 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 the Clippers when he bought them in 1981, and so that represents a, a compound annual uh, growth of 16%, and that's without considering the money that he might have taken out of the franchise in in dividends, uh, which is a much better return than you'd have got, say, putting your money um, into the Dow uh, or in, into regular common stocks, and. Uh, if that were to say Bulmer were to achieve the same level of uh, appreciation in the next 20 years say and sell them in 20 years time they'd be worth 44 billion dollars so it's quite possible that these assets could be could be worth this much money but one thing that makes i think um basketball and the American sports different from soccer world where you have also some clubs that are valued at very high prices so Forbes values Real Madrid at um, 3.4 billion dollars at the moment in soccer there are many fewer clubs that you would give that much value to and and, and one of the reasons uh, the reason for that really is that the NBA is the world's dominant league in basketball and that's not likely to change there's a no um, there's a long history of of other leagues trying to challenge incumbent leagues in American sports and failing. Um, whereas in soccer world, there are actually several leagues. So the biggest league at the moment is probably the English Premier League, but you have La Liga in Spain, you have the Bundesliga in Germany, which is growing, you have Serie A in Italy, which was once uh, the, the dominant league in Europe, plus you have Brazil potentially as a growing league, and, and who knows who else. And so there's more competition in leagues, which means that the that, that clubs within those leagues are, are not necessarily going to be such a, a good bet in the future. One of the things that we typically like to see 
at The Motley Fool when we're evaluating a company and thinking about that stock, one of the things we like to see is stable management because, among other things, when you change management, that's a transition that is typically tough to pull off. So tenure does matter in the world of business. When you look at the management in soccer, and I'm not talking about the ownership, I'm talking about the coaches, it seems like tenure does not matter at all because am I wrong or are coaches getting fired constantly in the world of professional soccer? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They are. It's a it's a it's a rotating door policy. And uh, so, for example, give you an example. The in in England, which is not by no means the 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 worst, the average tenure now is just about one year for for managers in the Premier League. Um, and to take a comparison, for example, uh, average tenure of CEOs in um, in in the in um, American companies uh, quoted on the stock exchange is probably something like four years on average. And in addition, what I mean, that's that's only the tip of the iceberg in a sense, because CEOs in American companies, for example, would typically have been on average 19 years with the company before they get to CEO. So they're deeply experienced in the culture of the business on average. Whereas, again, the managers in, in English soccer, they won't have come up through the ranks. So they have been drafted in from from somewhere else in order to become the manager, which really and you really want to question, well, what on earth can you possibly do in that with that shorter period of time? Can you really exert an influence? And one of the things we say in Socconomics is that um, if you look at what uh, what how we can account for success of the teams, the major factor is how much money you spend on the players. So in other words, um, there's a very, very high correlation between player salaries and team success. And then people say, well, hang on, the correlation and causation are not the same sort of thing, and that, which is quite right, of course. But but then they actually you think about why player salaries might explain success. Is there is the the the, so, the soccer world conforms to almost the kind of ideal conditions for a perfectly competitive market. It's uh, there are many buyers and many sellers, um, not just nationally but internationally. Um, you observe very clearly the quality of the players because you get these repeated opportunities week in week out to watch the players perform and you see how effective they are and um, you, not just one or two people watching but thousands and thousands of people watching so there's really not much debate in the end about the relative standing of the players and so in other words you that that means that when you uh, players are traded on a regular basis and when they trade they could be traded at prices which really reflect their abilities at least relative to other players we could argue whether absolutely it's justified but we could say relative to the to the alternatives the players have played roughly what they're worth which ultimately leaves very limited role for the coaches um, and we've been engaged in sort of something of a debate in the soconomics between ourselves and and the authors of the numbers game which is another book about um, thinking about how the economics and business of, of soccer works and they argue that that residual that the managers account for is very important and and we and economics we're, we're actually fairly skeptical but that actually they make much of a difference and if they did if it did make much of a difference why wouldn't the managers get longer to try and implement their their plans and policies Coming up, more with Stefan Szymanski. 
This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We're talking with Stefan Szymanski, author of Soccernomics, Why England Loses, Why Germany and Brazil Win, and Why the U.S., Japan, Australia, Turkey, and even Iraq are destined to become kings of the world's most popular sport. Let's talk about the World Cup. I was recently talking with uh, one of my colleagues who works in our office in London. And we were talking about the World Cup, and he told me that England fans, while they will obviously root for England in the World Cup, they will boo individual players on the team based on which Premier League team they play for. Like, it, does, does loyalty to one's Premier League team trump the loyalty to the national team? Uh, it certainly does for many people in England. So, um, I, for example, so, so one of the things, I mean, the United Kingdom's a funny place. So we have four national teams, England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, and so many people who live in, in the United Kingdom actually support a team from from a different country. It's also a country of migrants, relatively recent migrants, and people who often still hold a loyalty to the countries they came from in India and Pakistan um, or uh, Caribbean islands, although that's probably more important in uh, the, the national game of cricket. But but even so, um, the idea of, of national loyalty is, is something um, something slightly questionable. And there are there are many players, there are many people who say, for example, the quality of the World Cup, the quality of just think about the quality of play. It's not it's not really as good as say the Champions League. I mean, which which game is there? Will the World Cup final live up say to the quality of the Champions League final that we've just seen? Very unlikely, I think. So many people would say that their club is more important to them, and they really they really only interested in the World Cup to make sure that the players on their team um, don't don't get injured. So this this the whole thing of nationalism in 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 England certainly is is not quite. It doesn't play out quite the same way as it does say in the United States or for example take Germany. Germany is a very nationalistic country where they, they really care about the, the success of the national team much more than they care about the success of their clubs. I am absolutely a casual fan when it comes to soccer. I'm interested in the World Cup for a number of reasons but I'll be honest the only person a month ago if you had asked me to name players on the US national team the only player I would have been able to name is Landon Donovan who did very well in the World Cup for the U.S. team four years ago, he was left off the team this year. And I'm curious if the U.S. is not expected to do well in the World Cup, and they are not. I'm curious if anyone thought about the financial implications of leaving the best-known star of the team off of the U.S. World Cup team, or if they just thought, you know what, we don't care about the financial implications. Um, We're just going to go with the team that we want. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things is say, well, we say what financial implications in the sense that, I mean, even if the United States wins were to win the World Cup, it doesn't nece- it doesn't directly mean anything for. Uh, that much for U.S. soccer uh, as as an organization, or for um, or even for, um, for for Major League Soccer, it would mean a little bit. I mean, one, one I think one of the issues here is that, that that and one of the you know one of the fundamental problems about soccer in the United States is that I mean it's been growing in popularity for some years now. I mean the the Major League Soccer is the tenth most attended. Uh, professional soccer league in the world, which is which is quite something for something that only started in 1996. Um, 
But the problem is, is that it's not really gra- grabbing the attention on TV. And that's where, I mean, that's where sports leagues make money. That's where they become powerful and important leagues. And um, we've seen, for example, with the coverage of the English Premier League on um, NBC this year. I mean, it's actually beating the, the MLS by some way. And, and really... To be, to be honest, that you know, a foreign league shouldn't be uh, out, 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 uh, outpacing the domestic league in terms of attention. And the, and the problem is, is that, um, in my view at least, is that that the MLS does not invest enough in player talent. So the the the, the salaries, the wage bill of of MLS, which consists mostly of Americans, is only four million dollars a team. Whereas, say, for example, in the English Premier League, it's $138 million a team. Wow. There are maybe 30 domestic leagues around the world that pay higher salary levels on average than Major League Soccer, including, for example, the Romanian National League. Now, no disrespect to Romania, but the United States ought to be able to field a better league than than Romania. And you can't if you don't pay for the talent. So because, again, go back to the point, there is a market for talent. You do get what you pay for more or less. It doesn't work perfectly and there's some variance and of course it's not exact. But nonetheless, you know, you you don't get vast differences um, between salaries if there aren't vast differences in in playing ability. And I think the United States is only likely to succeed as a national team once there is the investment in the domestic level in the domestic league and so um, the United States generates the quality of players who can compete on an international stage. Final question, then I'll let you go. Malcolm Gladwell was on the show earlier this year, and he was talking at one point about underdogs and said that relentless effort can trump talent. And I'm wondering if you think, to the the extent to which you think that is the case with soccer, and in particular in the World Cup, I, 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 I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with what he's saying, and and that ought statistically that ought to be true. And if you think about again, if you think about March Madness, then uh, you know you're out of the sixty four teams to start. Occasionally, a very small team can make it all the way to to the final, but it's very very occasionally. Um, and if you think about the World Cup, how many uh, small teams have ever have ever made it to to the final? Um, and how many small teams ever succeed? I mean, the World Cup is characterized by what Brazil have won it four times, uh, five times. Um, uh, Italy have won it, uh, what is it, four times, I think. Germany, um, four times. We see, actually, what we see in the World Cup are serial dominance by big nations. The book is Soccernomics, Why England Loses, Why Germany and Brazil Win, and Why the U.S., Japan, Australia, Turkey, and even Iraq are destined to become the kings of the world's most popular sport. It is a New York Times bestseller, so definitely pick it up. Stefan Szymanski, enjoy the World Cup, and thanks for being here. I will, and, and you enjoy it too. I hope you, uh, hope you get into it this time. That's going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Remember, we're hiring, so if you'd like to work at the Motley Fool, check out our jobs list at culture.fool.com. That's culture.fool.com. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Music